Uh, good afternoon, everyone. This is Richard Mollett. We're going to get started now. It's 1.06. Uh, a few housekeeping items before I do get started. Uh, this program is being recorded, and it will be made available for future viewing. We'll send out that link, and we're going to be posting it to our website. Uh, everyone has been muted, as I just said, to avoid feedback. We will open up the phones at the end of the program for questions. And as I mentioned a couple of times, uh, usually Sarah Rosenberg is on, and she's able to help people who troubleshoot having a connection, uh, making the connection to the screen. I just want to reiterate it's the same exact sign-in information that we always have, but I know we do have new people, or, um, you know, I often have to go through it myself a couple of times just to make sure that I get it right. So I'm sorry for that, but what I'm going – that she's not here – uh, so hopefully you'll all bear with me, and I will be very careful to, for each um, screen that I go to, to repeat, you know, what is going on so that everyone who's on the phone and may not have access or can't see the screen is able to have a uh, good and useful experience as well. So I'm going to get started. Uh, this, again, is uh, part of our series of programs on the new nursing home regulations. Today's focus is on decisions about care participation in care planning, and informed consent. And I want to do a quick shout-out to the New York State Health Foundation, who has funded these programs. We very much appreciate it. I think you all know, uh, those of you who have participated before, uh, I think that these programs are really important. Uh, they're certainly useful to me, and I hope that they're useful to you, family members, um, residents, long-term care ombudsmen, others who work with them in Alzheimer's associations, uh, other advocates, et cetera, that uh, we really want to get across to you all what's going on with the new standards, why that's important, and how you could use this information to better advocate for your residents. Before we move on, I just want to check. Now, I do have uh, – there's a message thing on the upper right-hand side. It's like a little bubble. Uh, you can post on that, and I'll check it every once in a while to see if there's any messages, but uh, we're going to get started now. So thank you. Okay. A little bit about the Long-Term Care Community Coalition, and I'm going to start off each program, just spend a few minutes, not, I don't want to waste too many people's time, but just to let you know who we are, who I am, and what the program is about. We are a nonprofit organization. We are entirely dedicated to improving care for residents in nursing homes and in adult homes and assisted living wherever people get long-term care in a residential setting. Our focus for about almost 30 years now has been on policy analysis and systems advocacy, and that means that we really work on a systemic basis on the state and the national level to advocate for uh, better care, uh, better accountability, for resident safety. We also do um, programs such as this, which we, in which, excuse me, we seek to translate some of our work on the policy level to help individuals who are working uh, with residents or residents themselves to achieve better care. And as many of you know, we're also a coalition of organizations and people across New York State that have joined together to support better resident care. And again, we are entirely dedicated. Uh, we don't include providers. We do try to work with providers, but we don't include providers in our members because we are, are solely dedicated to, uh, to the residents and to improving resident care. 
Uh, I joined LTCCC 15 years ago this November, and I've been executive director since 2005. So just briefly what we're going to be talking about today, I'm going to provide, again, a bit of a background on the nursing home system, uh, just laying the foundation of the law and the regulatory standards, and then today's focus will be on a few of the important residents' rights. There's a lot of residents' rights, and, and I really want to, again, focus these programs on what can we um, talk about that is really important to the resident experience and where there's opportunities for you all to make changes uh, for yourself or for your residents on the ground. Today we're going to be talking about care planning, um, resident choice, and consent under the new regulations. And I just put a graphic here at the bottom so you could see on the right-hand side, just to give you an idea, we start off with the law, which we'll talk about, and then under the law we have the regulations. The regulations are how the law is implemented. And then under the regulations, we have oversight. Uh, in New York State, it's the Department of Health, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. The oversight, in turn, is how the regulations are implemented. So you have the law, the regulations spell out what the law requires, and the oversight is what's supposed to make sure that the law is realized for the residents. And that's why it really comes back to, um, to residents' rights and to residents, resident care. And that's my, uh, my aunt and my mother, <laughs> if anyone's interested. <laughs> Uh, so the nursing home system in a nutshell, and I know some of you have seen this slide before, I again just wanted to give people a background of why these are so important to residents um, and to the care that they receive and to our expectations when we go into a nursing home. Almost every nursing home in the state and in the country participates in Medicaid and our Medicare. And by participate, what we mean is that they take in some amount of money from either Medicare and or Medicaid. Usually it's both. When a facility participates in Medicaid or Medicare, it agrees to meet the standards that are provided for in the nursing home reform law. That is the federal nursing home law. Now, states can have additional protections, but a state cannot have less protections. So one example that I often think about is that many states have a specific standard for the um, uh, amount of staff that's required for each resident. New York is not one of those states, but about two-thirds of the state have a specific requirement. Mm -hmm. The federal stand regulations do not have a specific requirement. Um, so that, that, that is something that's really important. But no one can have, no state could have less of a requirement. So anything that we talk about in the federal standards, this applies to every nursing home resident in New York and elsewhere. So if you have a family member who may be out of state in a nursing home, maybe they're in Pennsylvania or Florida or, or wherever, this everything we talk about applies to them as well. Importantly, federal protections, the nursing home reform law and the regulations that we talk about apply to every single resident in a facility, no matter who pays for their care, whether it's Medicare, Medicaid, private pay insurance, out-of-pocket, et cetera, Everyone has the same rights. It's not one right for one person and another right if, you, if you're paying less, you don't get as many rights. That's not the way things go. Uh, the federal agency, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, they pay for Medicare and Medicaid services. They license facilities, and they contract with the State Department of Health 
to carry out those activities. So actually the money wind up coming through the Department of Health and the oversight, um, the regulatory oversight comes from the Department of Health as well, or it's supposed to. Um, but that's, that's really the, the locus of that kind of authority in New York State is with the Department of Health. A little bit about the nursing home reform law. 1987, the uh, nursing home reform law passed. The standards came out in 1991. The federal law requires that every resident, as I said before, is provided the care and quality of life that they need to attain and maintain his or her pious, practicable, physical, emotional, and social well-being. So, as excuse me, as I said before, these rights apply to everyone, whether you're there for short-term, long-term, whether you're Medicaid, Medicare private pay, these apply to you. Highest practicable physical, emotional, and social well-being. I know it's a mouthful, but the nursing home reform law, and why I, I always start off focusing on it, is, I think, really exceptional. Um, the reform law, the standards for nursing home care don't aren't based upon the nursing home. It's not like you're a car manufacturer and you can only put out so much um, lead or so much carbon, carbon dioxide uh, per vehicle that comes off the assembly line. The reform law focuses on the highest practical, practicable, excuse me, physical, emotional, and social well-being of the resident. Is that the facility has to provide those services to meet the needs of people as an individual. So it's really focused on recognizing not only individual needs, but that the person is a person, is an individual, and that this is a really special and important responsibility that nursing homes have. Uh, as I said, the law emphasizes individualized patient-centered care. So I mentioned before that the federal law doesn't have a set staffing requirement, a certain number of hours, a certain number of CNAs or RNs. The law does say that they have, have to have sufficient um, staff and sufficient services. And I know, uh, I've been a family member myself, as you saw, my aunt was in, in the nursing home a few years ago out of Long Island. My grandmother, actually I have two grandparents who, who were in nursing homes. My brother-in-law was in a nursing home last year. I know that staffing is a huge, huge issue. And there, there, there are many issues out there. I think um, research has shown my own personal experience and, and experience of families uh, and ombudsmen and residents who have spoken to over the years that staffing is, is quite often the biggest issue. Um, mm -hmm. And so what's important, I think, for us to remember, and which I try to remember myself, is that the standards are good and they're strong. They say you have to have sufficient staffing. The problem is, is that when there's not sufficient staffing, nursing homes are not held accountable. So, or too often, I should say, are not held accountable. And we see in the research we do that there's often very little, even very little accountability for short staffing. So I talk to families, I talk to, to ombudsmen, and they say there's not enough staffing. How can these things happen? How can we have the residents' rights if there's not enough staff to do it? And they are right. And again, I have experienced this personally, you know, as well as professionally, and I understand the heartache of, of seeing that. But that, again, gets back to why these programs are so important, and I hope you'll join us and help us get the word out about them, is that I honestly believe that if we don't know what our rights are, then we'll never realize them.
I mean, it, it's tough when this, it, it's obviously tough and challenging when the standards are not met, um, when people, you know, that we love or ourselves as individuals see that we're not getting the care that we need, that, that we need, that call bells aren't answered, that people develop pressure ulcers, that care is given at the convenience of staff rather than to meet the needs of residents. Those are all really difficult challenges. I get that. Um, but I think that if we know what our rights are and we have some of the tools and the information uh, as to, to supporting um, our knowledge of those rights, that we can make a difference. And importantly, if we don't know what our rights are, then we're much more likely to accept care that is uh, substandard. So I think that's why this is important. I think it's important. And I hope that we're we'll able, excuse me, that we're able to uh, express this and iterate in a way that's useful to you all. And I just want to mention, uh, if you do have any questions or comments, shoot us an email, info at LT, as in Tom, CCC.org. I'm really interested in getting feedback. So, um, you know, please do let me know. And also as part of the project, again, with, you know, we're doing this with funding from the New York State Health Foundation, is that we do want to provide technical expertise. So, we don't have the capacity to help people with individual problems, unfortunately, and I'm really sorry about that. But um, I'm happy to try to help um, ombudsmen, family or resident councils with questions and to see what, you know, so we can do, uh, you know, to help and to support your work. So there are other groups out there. I recommend, you know, first and foremost, probably going to the long-term care ombudsman if you have questions, if you're an individual, uh, and if you're a volunteer ombudsman going to your regional, you know, director or, you know, or, the, or regional going to the state, et cetera. But I think that um, we want to help as much as we can, as much as we have the capacity to do that. Uh, again, just as, as I mentioned before at the bottom of the slide, the regulations came out in 1991. So we're celebrating the 87, 97, 2007, 2007, the 30th anniversary, excuse me, of the passage of the nursing home reform law this year. Um, the regulatory standards came out in 1991. Why are we doing these programs now is that for the first time since 1991, the federal regulatory system has been significantly updated and, and revised. And this is going to affect every aspect of care and quality of life. Uh, so I put a couple of pointers here. One is that all the regulations are changing. For 25 years, nursing homes, nursing home surveyors, those are the inspectors, long-term care ombudsmen, uh, advocates for residents, everyone knew what the rules were and where to find them. All of that is changing. All the language has changed. They issued hundreds of pages of new regulations uh, last October. All of the guidelines are changing. This is really important. The guidelines are what explain what is expected in the regulations. They flesh that out. Uh, so if I told you that you needed to build a model airplane and gave you a kit, or if you did that for me, I would say, huh, what? The guidelines explain, well, this is what you need to do. These, these are the actual instructions of what we expect to happen. If you have a resident, for instance, with dementia, what kind of care, uh, what kind of, uh, what, what, what kind of uh, feeding and um, activities that we expect that you to have for that resident so that she is able to um, maintain good nutrition 
and maintain a decent quality of life, again, that's highest practicable for her. Uh, so that's why the guidelines are so important. All of the guidelines are also changing, and the new guidelines have not come out yet. So we have the regulations came out in October. Uh, they're being implemented in three stages. One, the first stage started in November of 2016. Stage two is November of this year, and the guidelines will come out by that time. And then the next stage is uh, November of 2019. And the reason why all the new regulations are coming out in three stages is because some of them uh, implemented different changes and generally better protections for residents. Another reason why these are so important. So I welcome everyone. I know I heard a couple of rings. We're, we're really just getting started on introduction and background. Uh, so the regulations, as I said, it was a major change, the first major change in 25 years. Um, and because of these changes, they're being implemented over a three-year period. Uh, and as the more complex changes are being implemented either this year or in 2019. Lastly, the other thing that's changing is what's called the FTEC system. That's the system that's used by nursing home inspectors when they identify a problem in a facility, it, um, it, which is a violation of an aspect of the regulations. Each aspect of the regulations has what's called an FTEC, and that's the number that they use to cite. So all those are changing. Now, these are important in a couple ways. One is that the changes, as I said, you know, time and time again, we've had, we have a lot of changes going on here on a lot of different levels. But as part of that, it's not only just a change, it's that there's going to be a lot of confusion. This has been my concern as an advocate that how are people going to know? How are the nursing homes going to know? How are the surveyors going to know? How are, you know, those of us who work with nursing home residents and families and ombuds, how are we going to know? It's all different. So it used to be, for instance, that a nursing home surveyor came in and he or she might have seen that someone was getting drugs in a, you know, inappropriately and they could cite that that was F329, inappropriate drugging. That's gone. So now they might have to look it up. They may not be clear where things are. Um, and so it concerns me. And one reason why we, we wanted to do this project is I really feel that, again, you know, probably more so than ever, Families, residents, ombudsmen, advocates, people who work and talk to families and residents really need to have a basis of knowledge for what they can expect because there's going to be even more confusion among the nursing homes and among the Department of Health and, and, and CMS um, on the ground. So it's important for us to know. And uh, as I mentioned uh, before, all of these resources are being put on our website as well, nursinghome411.org, uh, no dots, no dashes, and nursinghome411, excuse me, dot, uh, org. And we are putting up all those, uh, the information there. We have a learning center and an action center, and we are in the midst of, uh, we just finished a redesign, so we're posting things up there, and we want to make it as useful to you. Uh, just, you know, as we get started, no one has to memorize all this. What I really want to do with these programs is to plug in with you on some of the things that are going on, and then we are going to distribute after every program a you know um, short handouts 
and they'll also be posted on the website so you could have that information and we're happy to send copies to family councils, to resident councils, to ombudsman offices. We do send them out to all the regional offices, um, et cetera. So we really want to make sure everyone gets either electronic copies or hard copies. Uh, we're really happy to share this information and we're happy for others to use it. So feel free to put your name on it. I don't care. I really just want, honestly want the information and any resources that are usable or useful to get out there. Why does this matter? So we have the concerns about there's a lot of change taking place. The inspectors, you know, the surveyors may not know what the standards are or how to cite them appropriately. Uh, but fundamentally, the, many of the rules are getting stronger. What CMS did, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, one reason why they set out to do this is that they felt that there was over the decades, since 1987 to 1991, when those regulations were first developed, that we have a better sense now of, of what we expect, what care standards are for dementia, for people who are getting older, people who are living a lot longer now, so that there are, the rules are stronger. Uh, in addition, and what I've seen is that there are avenues for improved enforcement. So I know a lot of families, uh, a lot of ombudsmen, a lot of residents say, well, the inspectors came in here and they didn't see all these things that were going on, uh, or the same thing happens year after year after year in my facility. Well, there is some really good language that we're seeing in terms of how to better uh, identify and cite when there is substandard care or, or abuse or neglect uh, in a facility. And then, as you can see on the right-hand side, I have a large purple egg. Um, hopefully, this will all lead to better resident care. But again, just to get back, the transition is taking place over, started last December, last November, excuse me, and it's going over the next couple of years. So I'm thinking, you know, at least three to five, maybe even more years, um, as people really understand what is going on and are able to integrate that into their practice is almost see better care. But from our perspective, my perspective, and I think from your perspective, is we are always talking about rights that exist. Um, so anything, any handout that you receive from us, unless it says otherwise, will say exactly the rights that you have. And very importantly, one thing I, I would ask you to remember is that with all the changes going on um, at CMS with the regulations, all of the residents' rights stayed the same or were increased. So any resident right that you were aware of last week, last month, last year is still there. Uh, and so, you know, no one can say, oh, well, things have changed. We don't know. No. You do know the residents' rights are still there. If anything, they've been added to. And that's why it's so important for us to be aware of this. Because um, we don't know what we have a right to expect and we can't advocate for it, then it's really unlikely for it to happen. And as I've said, uh, many of you I know are on the line who have been to some of the programs I did last year uh, with family councils. I know it's very frustrating. And as I said, I, I've been a member, it can, uh, excuse me, a family member. It can be very frustrating when you know that these rights are there or you're being told that these rights are there and you're not seeing it happen in their nursing home, in your nursing home. But, uh, my feeling again is that if we are not aware of our rights and there's no possible way that they're going to be realized. Uh, right. So it is challenging. It is tough. 
Uh, it's really difficult to see a loved one who is not getting the care that we think that they need or to be in a nursing home and to feel the frustration of not having uh, the care that you need. But uh, the only way, again, that I think that we can um, improve care is to advocate effectively based upon not, you know, our knowledge of the rules and what we have a right to expect from our nursing homes. And again, all these materials will be up on our website uh, over the next um, weeks and months. Many of them are up there already. I've been posting the PowerPoints, you know, the presentations that you're seeing here uh, pretty much right after the presentation. We do send them out as well uh, via email to everybody. And we also are doing um, handouts. And so there's a variety of materials. You don't have to just take my word for it. You don't have to try to remember. You can go to our website, again, nursinghome411.org, and see uh, exactly what you need. Now, what I wanted to focus on today is a few of the specific resident rights that I thought, uh, again, are really important and places where there is room for our advocacy. And those rights are related to care planning, informed consent, and the right to decide uh, about, make decisions about treatment, including refusing treatment. Now, this is from the federal regulations exactly. So here we're talking about care planning. You can see on the second line, if you're able to look online, it's the section 483.10C, planning and implementing care. That is exactly, that's the section of the law. So what I always tell people, and you can't see me now, but when, when I do uh, programs in person, is that I'm bald. I've been bald for, um, for a long time now. Um, you don't have to just say some bald guy came and told me about, about, these, um, about these rights. These are actually in the law, and they're in the regulations. So, and the reason why that is important is, again, is you're not just taking my word for it. You're not just saying, oh, I read something from an advocacy group. No, I, you don't have to remember this, but we include it on all of our handouts so you have a reference. That it's not just something that I'm saying or that I made up, that it's actually a way to find out exactly what happened. Now, the other thing here is that anything is, that's in orange represents new language. And what I've been doing with these programs is to help people understand both what has existed and what's new. So in terms of planning and implementing care, the resident has the right to be informed of and participate his or her treatment. And that includes the right to be fully informed in language that he or she can understand of his or her total health status, including but not limited to his or her medical condition. We're going to talk more about that. The resident has the right to be informed in advance of the care that they're planning to furnish and the type of caregiver or professional that will furnish care. And that's new. So, that, so having knowledge, having the right to have knowledge about who's going to be providing that care. Is it going to be a nurse aide? Can I expect to see a, a doctor or an RN? Uh, those, I think, are often very important questions. And now there are questions that you have the right to ask under the new regulations. And this is also new. The right to be informed in advance by the physician or other practitioner or professional of the risks and benefits of proposed care, of treatment and treatment alternatives or treatment options, and to choose the alternative or option that you prefer. So you always had the right to make choices, but here, 
and the new regulations, they have made very clear that you have a right to speak to your doctor. Uh, and if it's not a doctor, it's another practitioner or professional. You know, many of us sometimes see someone who's not an MD, but they, they are um, someone who's professional. And what this means, in essence, is that it is not appropriate for the nurse aide. I mean, nurse aides are great, and nurse aides provide enormous amounts of, of care. Don't get me wrong. I, I have a, truly a great deal of respect for, for nurse aides who often do really hard work, and it's unrecognized. But right. residents have the right to speak to the practitioner. So it can't be someone who, like in The Wizard of Oz, behind the curtain or, or driving their car, and they fax in a, a prescription for you, and they've never even laid eyes on you. So this is really making clear that you have a right to speak to that person. And I think that, that, that is really important. I want to just kind of flesh out some of this. So what does it mean? If you look at the first kind of flag I have on, on, in orange on the right-hand side, what does it mean, the right to be fully informed in language that he or she can understand of his or her total health status? So what is, what is total health status? This is from the federal regulations. It includes the resident functional status, the resident nutritional status, the resident rehabilitation and restorative potential, the resident's ability to participate in activities, the resident's cognitive status, the resident's oral health status, the resident's psychosocial status, and sensory and physical impairments. So again, no one needs to memorize this. I probably, you know, this afternoon, if you asked me uh, two hours from now, what, is, what does it mean total health status, I cannot tell you but I want to give you the tools so you know where to find them. So when you are talking to your doctor or practitioner or you're going for a care planning meeting in the future, you will have this that you can get a copy from your ombudsman. We'll send you a copy or you can go again to our website and, and just download a copy, one or two pages. We always keep things as brief as possible so that you can say, oh, these are the things that I have a right to know about and these are the things that they are supposed to be addressing. And before we move on, I just want to say in the third bullet, rehabilitation and restorative potential, that's really important because a lot of people I hear uh, are you know, inhibited or prohibited from getting re rehabilitation services, um, occupational therapy, physical therapy, et cetera, because they say, oh, you're never going to get any better. But if those services can help restore you to a better, you know, to, to keep you um, in, say, being mobile or to keep you continent, et cetera, if you go into a nursing home, the point isn't that you're going to run a four-minute mile. But if you go into a nursing home and you could walk down the hall, you should not be unable to get out of bed because the nursing home didn't provide you with those rehab or occupational therapy services. So I hope that makes sense. So again, um, let me rephrase that. You know, my when my aunt uh, went into the nursing home, the one who was pictured with my with my mother, some um, my godmother's mother actually, when she went to a nursing home, she was able to walk. And 
I remember my my mother thought it was kind of funny that she was getting occupational therapy. She was like 98 years old at the time. She was, but they were walking her down the hall, and that was really important because she had the right to maintain that ability. Now, eventually, she did lose that ability. She lived to be over 100. But as long as she was physically, you know, fit, as long as she was physically able to do it with help, she deserved and had a right to that help, and that is what we paid for her to have. So that's why I just wanted to spend some time. So all of these things are important. I'm glad that they included oral health status. We're seeing more of a focus on, on dental and oral health. It's, I think it's really important and too often overlooked. You know, of course, psychosocial status is important. Sensory and physical impairment. I think about my brother-in-law who was blind. Quite often, actually, had uh, to tell you, I had a dream about him last night. Just about this, he was blind, and often they would come in and they would grab him. They'd start giving him a shot or something. He had no idea what was going on. Um, they have to be aware and providing care that is based upon all of these needs uh, and where the resident is. And then the second flag I have on the right-hand side, to whom does this apply? The right to be fully informed. It applies to the resident, and it applies to the resident's designated representative. So this is really important. I say this over and over again when I talk to families um, that – if the resident doesn't have capacity, uh, if the resident has given, you know, asked someone else to be their designated representative, then that person takes the place of the resident and has the right to ask all of these questions also. So we're going to move on. The other thing I wanted to focus on in this, in, you know, in, in this discussion is informed consent. So I'm just going to go up back a couple of slides to what we were talking about. So care planning. So we have the right to be informed and participate in treatment, to be informed in language that you can understand of your total health status, all these important things, and then the right to also to make choices about alternatives. And that's where we oops, come to informed consent. Uh, so what does that mean? Every patient, and again, if patient or resident, um, and if, it's, if the patient doesn't have capacity or the patient has asked someone else to make decisions for him or her, then it's the, that individual. They have the right and should be helped to understand the risks and benefits of any proposed care services or medication as well as possible alternatives. They have the opportunity to say yes or no and the, the opportunity, excuse me, to choose the alternative or option that they prefer. Why is this important? Two general reasons, two basic reasons, excuse me. One, in general, it gets to the idea that the locus of decision-making is based on the resident. And that's something that I really, really love about a lot of the new regulations that I've been reading is that it all comes back to the resident. And there's even one point where, where CMS says in the language, it is expected that the facility and the facility staff are going to meet the resident where he or she exists. Well, I hope that, that, that makes sense because it really, really um, resonated with me is that you know, too often, uh, and I find this myself too, you know, when, when I'm you know, seeing a doctor sometimes, um, that they're going to do something, they're saying something, you need this, you need that. And it's all going very fast, and it's not necessarily in language that I understand, and I'm not 
an elderly person. I'm not, I'm not um, someone who is in a nursing home, and I'm an advocate and I'm a lawyer. And told something, oh, I'm not really sure I understand that. It has to be has to be focused on the resident. It has to be focused on uh, either with the residents making decisions or whoever is making decisions for him or her um, that they understand. So you have the right to say, wait, slow down. Uh, can you explain that to me? I don't understand. Those are really hard things to ask. And again, that's one reason why I really uh, hope that these programs are useful to help people um, ask those questions. And if you're working with residents, if you're working with family members, uh, Karen Connor, Alzheimer's Association, or the OMSN program, um, I hope that this is helpful to you in helping people understand that it really gets down to, to the resident um, or the patient or the person who's helping them make decisions or making decisions on their behalf. The second reason why this is important is in relation to antipsychotic drugging. Uh, the resident, or I put here her, his or her representative, must be fully informed in advance of the use of drugs, understand and be involved in planning and implementation of the care plan, which should include plans to reduce drugs implement and implement, excuse me, non-pharmacological approaches and has the right to say no. So the antipsychotic drugging issue is a, is a really big issue. Um, almost one in actually just about one in five residents in New York State are given antipsychotic drugs. There's been right. a big campaign for a number of years now. It's been since 2012, so it's been uh, almost five years. There's been a campaign to reduce antipsychotic drugging. Antipsychotic drugs. I won't get into into too much here, but we could do a program on it. Again, send me an email if you if you are interested in, um, in, in in talking more about this. But again, one out of five of our residents are given antipsychotic drugs. Only about one and a half to two percent of residents will ever have a clinical diagnosis that requires such drugs. So you have one and a half to two percent of people who could possibly need the drugs according to you know to CMS, and you have twenty percent that are getting these drugs. What's wrong with this picture? The, the, the issue is, is that too often people are just given antipsychotic drugs. And we'll talk a bit more about an example, but it, it's a huge and under-recognized issue. Uh, antipsychotic drugs are not clinically indicated for uh, dementia-related psychosis, so to speak. And when someone has dementia-related behaviors, they're generally not appropriate. They are very, very dangerous. Um, they have yep. a high risk of death, of uh, Parkinsonism, of heart attack, of stroke. And uh, for everyone, what they, you know, pretty much what they generally do is they sedate you. Uh, and I know that there's one expert that with whom I work who said, you're basically what you're doing is you're putting a pillow over someone's head. You're, you're taking away yep. their ability to express what's going on but you're not addressing any of those underlying issues. So I would be happy, um, you know, send me some feedback. Let me know if people are interested. We'll do we'll do a program on that because this is something that's very near and dear to my heart, and I unfortunately see it over and over again. People sometimes don't even realize that their loved one is being given antipsychotics. We'll talk a little bit more about it in this program uh, with the example that I have, but also um, 
we can do a program because there's a lot of good information and resources that are out there. Uh, let's get back to informed consent. What can you do? So we talked about, you know, some of the rights and the regulations. Uh, what I want to try to do in the next couple of slides is to translate that. You know, what can you do with that? Um, you can ask to speak to the physician or, again, the prescribing practitioner directly. What is the diagnosis? What is the nature and purpose of the proposed treatment, procedure, or medication? What are the risks and the benefits? What are the alternatives, regardless of cost or the extent to which they're covered by insurance? So you have a right to have that, that information. You may not be able to make choices on it. I mean, you may be restricted by what's by what, what the insurance will pay, et cetera, but you have a right to know and to make, this is where we get to informed consent. You have a right to know. Um, so they can't say to you, oh, we're only going to tell you about a couple of things because that's what we think your insurance will provide. No. Uh, you have the right to know about the risks and the benefits of alternatives and the risks, excuse me, and the benefits of not receiving any treatment at all. Uh, so those, those things are really, and again, these are not things you have to memorize. We have, um, you know, resources on our website and we'll be sending out resources after the program. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to provide a uh, scenario. Unfortunately, we have a lot of scenarios. Uh, I know Charles Gorgi is on the line and we were just talking about this that we can use in terms of informed consent. Uh, this is, this is one that, I, that, that I've come across that I think is useful. So I'll read out loud for those of you who aren't seeing the screen. Uh, Mrs. Darcy's, Mrs. Darcy's nursing home resident, her son Jim comes to visit her once a week. When Jim leaves, she often seems very sad. Uh, lately, as her dementia has progressed, Mrs. Darcy has started to become very confused, and she gets upset when Jim gets up to go. She starts crying. Sometimes she'll even start screaming. She'll smack or strike out her age when they go to take her back to her room. Obviously, it's upsetting for Jim, but the nursing home staff, they've approached him, and they've said that Mrs. Darcy's behavior is disturbing to other residents, and something needs to be done for her sake as well as that of other people. Uh, they've told him, look, you know, she can't stay here and be lashing out at caregivers. Uh, so the head nurse says to Jim that they need to give Mrs. Darcy a medication, Haldol, to calm her down before she hurts herself or someone else. What can Jim do? And I have to say, you know, as a family member, I understand, you know, we don't want to see, you know, we see someone who's upset. We don't want to see our loved ones upset. So that, you know, it makes sense quite often to say, oh, yes, please give her something to calm her down. But as I just mentioned, we're not always told that some of these drugs, some of these medications or treatments may not be uh, the best, so to speak, for residents. Sometimes it can be quite dangerous. So here, just in terms of what, what can Jim do? Um, he can ask to speak personally to the doctor or the prescribing practitioner. So that is something that is, again, kind of new, that, that CMS has made very clear that, that Jim has that right. Ask, what is Haldol? What is it supposed to accomplish for his mom? What are the potential side effects and dangers in the short term and the long term? What are the alternatives? If Jim says it's okay, what are the plans that the nursing home has for monitoring his mother to ensure that side effects are avoided or minimized 
and that the treatment continues to be beneficial to her. And then when can we schedule the next care planning meeting to discuss how she's doing, how she's doing on those medications? So these are just, again, some baseline questions, not expecting, because I, I would have difficulty memorizing all this, and as you know, I think you know, I work on these issues a lot. We have these materials, so you can, again, easily copy them out. If you're with an organization, you are more than welcome to put your own letterhead on. I honestly don't care. We really want people to have the information that is uh, available that they can use and be equipped to deal with these issues as um, from, from you know as strongly uh, as possible. In addition, Jim can do independent research, so he should speak to the doctor or whoever the the the, the leading you know practitioner or caregiver is, and then do some independent research. Search online. Speak to the, the long-term care ombudsman office. Um, or the ombudsman in your facility. Use these questions above as a guide when you do that research. So you don't have to come and sit down and just Google, um, you know, and, and start thinking, what should I Google? You can Google Haldol. Uh, you can Google, um, you know, and then, you know, move from there. What are side effects of Haldol, et cetera? Take notes. Print out information, again, for future reference. Uh, and then I put in, again, our website, nursinghome411.org. We have a learning center, and we are adding a lot of resources there that we'll be putting together um, over the next couple of months. So I would say between now and um, you know, May, June, we are going to be putting up a toolkit specifically on this issue, on, on dealing with antipsychotics and dementia care. Uh, but we have a lot of resources as well that we'll be putting up that, that will be hopefully easy for you to find. And if you have feedback, again, uh, I'm honestly always interested in your feedback. We want to make this as useful as possible um, for you. Here are a couple of the resources that I just copied as examples. So on the left-hand side, we have our fact sheet on antipsychotic drugging, and it gives some specific standards. And then, as I think I mentioned before, all of our fact sheets, generally I try to limit them to you know, just a couple pages, so it's a front and a back. The back of this of this fact sheet, excuse me, the front right here, what you're seeing has the standards. The back of the fact sheet, which is not here, uh, will say some examples, like some of the examples we had before of what you can look for, what you can ask, so you can take it. So you have two things. You have the points from the regulations. Again, you can see, if you look on the left-hand side, we have the standard, and we have the section of the Code of Federal Regulations, so it's not just something that Richard Mollett made up, you know, a couple months ago. You can actually cite back to that. And then on the, on the following page will be tips on how you can use this information to advocate. And then also we'll have on our website um, antipsychotics by class. So if you find out that you're, you know, if you find that you're being given a drug and you're not sure what it is or your loved one is being given a drug or someone in your facility has questions about, you know what this drug is, you can copy this out and you can, um, you can hand it out. Uh, you can give this to family councils and resident councils. If you're in a family or resident council, um, please, again, feel free to use any of these materials. But you can see that there's a large list. These are just the antipsychotics. And it goes on. There's several pages. I just copied the first page here. Uh, but you can see there's a lot of different things. So you can use that to see what is, you know, what, what, what drugs am I getting? Is it one of these drugs? So, quick recap. 
residents and their representatives or representatives must be afforded the opportunity to participate in their care planning and to be informed in advance about decisions and changes in care, treatment, or interventions. And that's in advance. So what we often hear, unfortunately, is that a family member um, will find out that their loved one has been given a medication and they weren't even told about it. That is not informed consent. You have the right to be told in advance. The new regulations make that even more clear. Uh, and CMS says they consider this to be, in, you know, the, the construct of informed consent. You have the knowledge, you have the right to refuse or the right to choose from different options. That means informed consent. This applies to both initial decisions about care and treatment and the right to modify your choice after that initial decision and the right to refuse care. Why did I mention, want to mention that here and leave you with that is because you have the right at the beginning to say, um, tell me what this is, what is it going to do, why, why are we doing it, and then you have the right to change your mind. You are not, you're not a prisoner, um, your resident is not a prisoner, you have the right to change your mind. Um, and you have the right to refuse care. And importantly, you have the right or, or the resident has the right to refuse care, even if doing so is may not be beneficial for them. And that's true of any kind of care. Uh, so that, that is something that's really important to remember. Just like I have the right to make choices that are not so good for me, and I've been eating a lot of Easter candy, for instance, this week. Uh, it's definitely not a good choice for me, but I've been doing it. I have a right to make that bad decision. And when I go into a nursing home, when someone goes to a nursing home, they don't lose that right. And then lastly, uh, on this page, the facility must, and I emphasize must, support and encourage participation in the care planning process. Must. That's not my must. That comes directly from CMS. They must, these are, this is what is required. It's not optional. It's not a suggestion. The resident's designated representative takes the place of the resident being informed about care and acting in the resident's best interests. So if your mother is in a nursing home and you know that she would want to have peanut butter sandwich and they say, no, 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 she shouldn't, it's too much sugar or whatever, she has the right, to, you have the right to make that decision uh, if it's in her best interest. And again, the right to be informed, participate in care planning, and to say no. This is what it means to have informed consent. And then lastly, I just wanted to mention there are many resources, again, nursinghome411.org and elsewhere where you, that you can find to help you when you're faced with care challenges. And I'm going to open it up now for questions or comments. Before I do that, though, a couple of more slides I just wanted to show you. Uh, again, the whole point of our doing this is we want to equip residents, families, Resident and family councils, really importantly, uh, ombudsmen, the New York Connects people, uh, people who work with residents and families. We want to give you the tools and the tools that you can pass on um, to those people to be as effective and knowledgeable advocates as possible. Uh, all the presentation materials, handouts, etc., will be posted again on our website. These are not things that you need to memorize. We just really want to plug in with you to let you know that, you know, when something doesn't seem right, quite often it's not right. Uh, and then lastly, about our next program on May 16th, 
uh, at 1 p.m. All the same dial-in information. We'll send out reminders again. We're going to send out uh, invite sheets. Uh, next program will also be on residents' rights. It's going to focus on residents' rights to a safe environment, residents' rights and to develop resident and family counsel, and the residents' rights when it comes to grievances in the nursing homes. And those grievance processes have been really strengthened in the new regulations, so that's really important. So I'm going to go back and open it up to um, questions and comments. And there we go. Uh, so if you have any questions or comments, I'm gonna um, I'm gonna mute really quickly and then because I'm gonna answer some of the comments that came in on messages and if others have have excuse me questions they want to message that might be clearer and I'll answer them. Uh, so one person asked, is it required that both the resident and the representative be informed, or the representative, or if there's a representative? Does the resident give up that right? And that's a really good question. Importantly, the resident never gives up that right. So, I mean, the resident can say, like my aunt who I pictured earlier, she was in a nursing home. She wanted her daughter to make the decision. She didn't want to be bothered. But residents, you know, always have the, the right. And let, you know, it's only, the right only goes away, excuse me, from the resident to the extent that he or she wants it to. And if a resident has dementia, it is still incumbent upon the nursing home to try to uh, make sure that she is informed or he is informed and able to make decisions the best that they are able to. Um, so it shouldn't be that, you know, that they're asking, for instance, the daughter or the son, oh, does your mother want to eat now? Take a few minutes and bring food over or try to, you know, or, or, or communicate with the, with the resident with dementia. Maybe she's able to communicate. Maybe she is not able to communicate at that moment. Uh, maybe come back in 15 minutes or, or, or a half hour later and check in with her again to see. Don't, the nursing home that should not automatically assume that someone with dementia, it goes to the resident. So, so the resident doesn't uh, give up the right uh, unless he or she, and only to the extent that he or she wants to. Next question, can a resident choose a physician outside the nursing home for the nursing home care, not as a second opinion, but rather as their preferred uh, physician? Uh, they can. The resident has a choice to choose a physician. This is a very complicated issue, and to be honest, I am looking into it further as well. So the resident does have the right to choose a physician. The uh, physician has to be someone who can practice in the facility, um, so that therefore has permission to practice in the facility. There is a lot in the new regulations that says that a nursing home cannot put up undue barriers to prevent a physician from practicing. Uh, so just to be clear, on, you know, a little bit clear on that, I hope, is that if you have, you know, resident has a physician that is outside of the facility and she wants to keep that physician, and the physician is willing to 
come into the facility, um, the facility cannot put up, you know, significant barriers to preventing that doctor from coming in. And some of that, to be honest, is being worked out right now in the guidelines. Uh, and the guidelines have not, as I mentioned before, have not come out yet. So there is some confusion on this. The basic right is yes, you do have the right to choose a physician. Again, it has to be someone who um, will take your insurance and who will agree they can't force someone to come into the nursing home. And then there is the challenge of allowing the nursing home, uh, you know, getting the nursing home to allow that, that physician to come in. So the, um, and then the issue comes to um, the, is the nursing home putting up barriers to do that? And the nursing home is not supposed to, but we, I think in some instances may need further clarity uh, under the new regulations and the guidelines. So I don't have a perfect answer for that, but uh, generally speaking, I you know, don't give up on advocating for that if your doctor is willing to do that and you want to stay with your doctor. I'm going to open it up again to see, or you could press star six if you want to open up individually. Hi, so do we have any other questions or comments? Why are they not answering that question? Hi. I heard someone say something. <laughs> uh, any other questions? If not, I'm going to I'm going to end the call and thank you all very much again. Uh, let me just meet it very quickly. I thank you all very much for joining us. Uh, I really appreciate it. I hope it's helpful. Please do give us feedback. Uh, info, I-N-F-O, at ltcct.org. Uh, also, I want to give a shout-out to the Alliance of New York Family Councils. Um, I think that it's really important for nursing homes to have a resident and a family council. Um, the Alliance is doing some tremendous work, and I urge you to join with them. I believe that I put a, uh, a link on the website, excuse me, on the um, program. And if I didn't, I apologize. Oh, here we go. Okay, so here on the last screen, we encourage family members to connect with the Alliance of New York Family Councils at www.a, n as in Nancy, y as in yes, f as in Frank, c as in Carol, .org, or email info at a as in apple, n as in Nancy, y as in yes, f as in Frank, c as in Carol, .org. Or you can email us and we'll connect you as well. Uh, but the Alliance is really a wonderful organization that I am um, really happy to participate in uh, to some degree, as much as they'll let me. Um, and they're family council members who have come together across New York, and they welcome new members, and it really helps to strengthen uh, family councils, which we want to do as well. So anything that we can do to support you uh, in terms of family councils, something we're going to be talking about in our next uh, session next month, uh, please do join us for that. And also, we are having a couple of additional programs uh, this month on using the web. So uh, you should have received invites for that. If not, send an email, info at 
as in Tom, ccc.org. Thank you, everyone, very much for joining us today. I hope you have a wonderful afternoon. Bye-bye now. Thank you.